On today's podcast, we hang with one of the nicest guys we know, as well as one of the best guides on the West Coast, Tommy Locke. I first met him when I fished Homosassa 35 years ago. I didn't know much about tarpon fishing then, but I wanted to learn and see the best tarpon hole in the world. And they were all there, Pate, Evans, Apt, the list goes on. But two were a few of the remaining great guides like Al DePeric and many new young guns like Locke, who would be one of my first mentors. On today's podcast, Tommy and I go back in time and cover a big spectrum since our first days on the water. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged them both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. All right, we're rolling. <clears throat> All right, Tommy Locke, welcome to the Millhouse. It's great to have you on the program. I mean, um, you and I go way back. Uh, Nikki, Tommy was one of my very first guides. Um, Raz Reed invited me to go to Homosassa. I don't even know. I had not even tarpon fished before I went to Homosassa. I met Raz at a tennis tournament at Hilton Head when your mom was playing that event and his wife uh, played Wimbledon. So there were, and Raz used to be a professional tennis player. And he asked me about, you know, tarpon fishing and saltwater fishing because I was a big trout fisherman, tying flies in the hotel room. So I met Raz and a year or so later, you and I are fishing together. Yeah. You know, that's a long time ago. It was fun, but you were a great caster back then too. I don't know how, I I, I don't know how I, you know, but I had been a, a trout fisherman for a long time. So how'd you get hooked up with Tommy? I don't know how I got your number. I fished with uh, Eddie Walker over there. Right. I fished with you. I fished with Al just a couple of days. And uh, But I think the most days I spent were fishing with you. Yeah, in we home usually, yeah, we fished two slots. Yeah. I remember weeks. one day. I, remember, I do remember one day, though. And this was toward the end before you, started, before you came down to Keys and stuff. It, it was over at... Um, at Smith Rock, and it was up on the side of Red Rocks on the on the edge in there, and it was blowing so hard, and we got on those fish. Remember that day when the wind was blowing that hard, and I think we jumped like thirteen. You jumped thirteen. I was pulling, but I was laughing because it was so rough in Mozambique there with a the tide going against the wind that you'd be casting, 
and your feet would be in the air. <laughs> oh, and you'd God. land back on the tower, and you just keep casting. <laughs> oh, and they were biting. We couldn't catch them because it was too rough and stuff. But it was, that was – I mean, yeah. I was – I remember that. What um, – but, it, you know, but it was so – it was so hot and so cold over there. You know, I yeah. mean, I remember the last time I fished, I think I maybe had two shots in five days or something. And it's right. like, you know, I just can't do this. I want to – my learning curve is so flat, I gravitated to the keys. But before we get on with all that, uh, we've spoken to a number of anglers and guides from, we did uh, Dan Malzone and Guido here just Guido, recently. Yeah. Uh, when did you first hear about Home Assassin? Who were your first few anglers besides myself? Um, you know, I, Bill Riles, I had, I had several like anglers here and there and, um, uh, uh God, I'd have to really start thinking about that. But I'm, I, you know, I was born and raised not very far from there. Right, Webster. I was probably about thirty miles, forty miles from that area. And as a matter of fact, I was like all our little league uh, parties we'd have after little league and stuff were at Pine Island, at the actual Pine Island where Guido has his house there on right. Pine Island. And there was like one picture that my wife has somewhere of me crawling out of the crib naked, and everybody else was in there headed toward the water, you know, back in, you know, that was a long time ago. <laughs> was your father a fisherman? He did. He did fish. But my great uncle was a really heavy fisherman and he had bought like five acres on Sanibel in like 1949 or whatever. And then he traded for five acres on Pine Island when they built the causeway because it was going to get too busy. He said there'd be too many people. And uh, I don't know, it was just like that American sportsman type thing. And I just... I did fish a lot with my dad, but I passed everybody in fishing. When everybody were, had Zebco 33s, you know, to go bass fishing and stuff, I bought like the first blue speed spool that came out. And I was like heavy into bass fishing. And then talking about my fly fishing career getting started, I'd be bass fishing on Lake Panasofsky at Jim Veals, and I'd have a boat, and I'd go out there fishing and stuff, and I'd come back, but there was a Mr. Palmer. He he fly fished all the time, and he and I'd have, like, a stringer of bass, you know, come back, or I'd, you know, didn't keep them all the time, but I would have, like, bass and catch bass all the time. He'd come back, and he'd have, like, bluegill, shellcrackers, catfish, really? bass, everything. He was a real redneck. He was a fly fisherman. And, I mean, he like, <laughs> yeah, and he, I said, I asked him if he had teach me how to, you know, throw a fly rod. He said, Son, you need an eight-weight, a double taper line, a queen bee popper, and learn how to roll a garden hose. And I said, okay. What's that mean? Now, well, there was an eight-weight rod. <laughs> right. And there was a double taper line that you would get. And a queen bee popper was just like a little bass bug popper thing. No, but I'm, I'm saying you were asking him, what does roll the hose mean? Roll the hose. Yeah. I, well, he said, you know how to roll a garden hose. And he said, I said, what do you mean? And he took his arm and he goes, oh, like that. You know how you can straighten out. A, yeah, I said, oh, okay, okay. Well, I, for my 13th birthday, I got a Ted Williams special, eight weight, double taper line. I said, now, how do I tie all this stuff together? And then I found some things and like, you know, tied a line on somehow and put it in, it had a little eyelet that you'd stick in the end of the line and stuff. And then, but I got queen bee poppers. And then I started learning how to tie, but I got really good at just bass fishing and stuff. And yeah. then when we'd go over to the coast and I'd start fly fishing more and more and and it wasn't until, let's see, it was 1979 79 or 80, when I was in junior college, I was back helping my dad on a construction project, and that's when Jim Weber had just moved there with his dad, started a company. And 
And Jimmy was there, and he said, I said, oh, you're from Homestead. And I just ordered my first boat, a dolphin. It was, I got a dolphin 18 backcountry, one of the first ones they built. And uh, he said, yeah, I just ordered an 18 backcountry. And he says, I just bought a 16. He says, and I'm not fishing, you know, bone fishing, done all this stuff. And then he said, when I found out about Homosassa, was he went back in his files, or in his box, he pulls it out, and there was a clipping from from uh, when Lefty wrote the article in the Miami Herald. And I said, well, I know where they fish. I said, I've seen them do it. I said, I've been grouper fishing, trout fishing over there my whole life. So you know, I ended up buying, let's see, I, I think I bought the reel and he bought the rod the first time. So it would have been 1980 is when I went out there. And I knew how to get to where they were. That We could see the boats pulling, but there weren't that many. You know, there was six boats, eight boats, whatever. We could see them pulling and look up. And I remember I had... Uh, I started off with polarized glasses. I used to have a pair of Ray-Ban yellow lenses, and it was shooting glass, but they were polarized, so I could, you know, it was pretty cool to have those. And I broke them. And then as Roland Martin just came out with his new fishing glasses, and that's that's what I had so I could see the fish. And uh, Jim said he was he was polling first, and I was polling all of a sudden. He said, look, there they are right there. And I looked, and I said, I got them. And there's like a string of about uh, 20 fish lead fish about a 180 right i threw the fly out there in front in there and i stripped it and it ate it and i hooked it and almost caught it no 16 pound course or not came apart you know so it was like well that that, that didn't work out real well <laughs> jimmy get up there here comes another string and so we just like every weekend every day we had off we'd go fishing and it, it was like a disaster well, you, all you had to do it. I mean, the only book I, I think Lefty had a knot book out. That was about the only one that I remember. You know, I learned how to tie, but nobody really shared any information. The guides didn't share information. You just had to watch. You'd watch them fishing, and you knew who would be on the fish or who was doing it. And then finally started catching fish and stuff. And then that's when we started getting trips. Probably eighty two. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have my captain's license yet. You know, I didn't get my captain's license until eighty five. But I was already starting to guide because you know, give me trips and give me trips. And uh, what was interesting was there was a point when me and Jimmy would be talking. So we we stayed together. We rented a place and we stayed together the whole tarpon season. So we discussed. Were you fishing clients at that time, or just fishing clients, each other? clients and yeah. and fishing together? Yeah. You know, every minute I'd have, I'd like take my whole vacation. And I had to do that. And I missed some when I was playing baseball and stuff, but. I would still, as soon as I'd get back from baseball and it was over, I'd be back fishing again. But we would, we were trying to learn the place the whole time. Homosassa is such a, it's a, it's a unique place to learn how to fish. When they used to, if the fish did what they used to, where they used to come down the flat, they'd leave, you know, be up at Black Rock or they'd be on um, southwest of the lot or northwest of the lot and the cock holes, what we called them back then. And they'd be there, and then you know, about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, those fish would come out. They would start heading heading south, and they'd go by where the high right, where it would be outside, inside, all depended on the height of the tide, which, which lane they took, mm-hmm. right? So what I paid attention to was who was catching fish, and I'd watch them how they were pulling down the flat, and I started looking at the bottom, and I'd see, okay, where's a rock line going this way? Well, it's a little deeper here. And, oh, that, those fish are going this direction. And I said, okay, well, let me follow that. 
And then I started finding the bottom. So, and then I found out where the fish were going on a certain tides. So me and Jim would get on, you know, VHF radio, you'd get on the radio and you'd talk. And, um, this is kind of when I got my kickoff in fishing too, was I'd, I'd, you'd find, you'd, I'd get ahead of people. I'd say, okay, they're leaving. So I'd get on the radio, Jim, Hey Jim, man, I got to drop my guy off here at the boat ramp. He said, so I might come back out fish or I might not. But anyway, I'm going to idle out. I said, I'm going to pull out and then idle out. And so I'd pull out and idle. I get, I'd run two miles offshore, run all the way down south, pull back in and pull back into my spot. By the time they got down there, the fish were already coming and I was already catching them. So it was like learning that part of getting ahead of those fish was one of the most fascinating things I'd ever learned in my life. So this is when I got my big start in getting better clients and stuff was I was in a, what do how did Al and Tom pulled up to me and they said, I need to talk to you. And he's okay. And he says, well, you're in the wrong place at the right time too much. So I want to, you to come over to have dinner with me. So then I drove over to Home Assassin to meet Tom and and Tom said, I want to take up all your time. This is when he was uh, stopped fishing with Suchek at the time. And so I, okay. So I got to fish Tom there for about a week. And then I was going, from then on, I was going to pick up after him and fish Tom after that. And then he had his mountain bike wreck and wrecked his hand. And he couldn't come back that next year and stuff. And uh, I picked up Joe Shereen. I started picking up clients. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of how I picked up a lot of my clients. But the fascinating them, I, I still remember watching how those fish swam down that flat. It was kind of the coolest thing ever and how they came down. And when you got ahead of them and you get in the right place, it would be strategic too. I mean, you would have like, there would be, there was only about six or eight of us, maybe nine of us that really knew the Southern flat and how it happened. Right. It was like, you know, there was Al, there was Guido, there was Neil Sid Varskin, Ronnie Richards, Jim, a handful more, you know. Uh, and we would pick our spots where we we're going to go. But you had to get ahead of them. So we had to get ahead of the fish, get outside of them, get ahead to get down south on that outgoing tide when those fish came out. So they'd come down and they'd settle down into the bottom down there of Igers and stuff. And then they'd come out on the Guido line. And then there would be another backup place behind that they went. So right, you had to right. fish these fish through. And it was it was the coolest thing ever. And, oh, God, I had to think about, you know, all the – that was a lot of years. Well, you know, uh, we were speaking to Dave Dankert last night, and he was talking about fishing Florida Bay and about how he fishes the contour of the bottom okay. as much as he fishes about the fish. And it's about the water level. Right. So you're – you're saying too. You're confirming that that's how you did it up there. But you know, growing up, uh, you you were a big baseball player. Um, you know, High you're school, an archer. You know, so sports were a big part of your life. And when I look in your eyes, what's up with your one of your eyes? Did you lose a? Uh, yeah, I had a nail hit had, me in my eye, and I have an artificial lens in my left eye. You had a nail hit you. Mm-hmm. How? I my dad was a contractor for like 55 years, and I, I'd like this was took me out of my baseball career. I hit a nail. The nail took you out of your baseball career. Baseball career. Right. Yeah. I was, um, let's see, I don't know, I was 20, 24. Right. 24, playing baseball, fishing, playing baseball, fishing. And I'd just come back from, I just made a team up of an independent team after being released from the Braves and all the stuff, anyways. Then the Orioles wanted to pick me up, so I drove back to my house and, 
And so you were a professional baseball player. I played minor leagues. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was a long time ago, but it, it kind of it burned me out. Baseball burned me out. Let's, so. let's go to the nail reel first. Then I want then okay. I want to hear the baseball story. Right, so what right. happened to your eye? Okay. So anyway, my dad had a project. I like drove us twenty six hours back from Utica, New York. Got to the house and woke up, you know, midday the next day. And my dad said, hey, I got these hurricane straps need to be nailed in. Can you go do it? I said, sure, I'll do it. So I grabbed a nail apron and I ran over there and I was inside some petition walls in a bathroom. And I was nailing these these straps in with a hammer. You know, I'm not sure nailing these nails in these hurricane straps. And the sweat was dripping in my glasses, so I couldn't, I had to pull them down. And I hit a nail and it glanced off. And when it glanced off, it hung in that strap and it came back. And it went into my iris and oh. cataract my left lens. And then, fortunately, I went to the first or called the first doctor who's on vacation, called the second doctor who's on vacation, and it put me to the Waterman's Hospital. And Doctor uh, Panaccio was my doctor. Just got out of Florida. He saved my eye. And then after that, I uh, your went, vision was impaired. Well, I I was seriously sick. Six months before I could be fitted with a contact. So I didn't have a lens in my left eye. And what so, was that like? Oh, horrible. Because you, know, you can't see. Can't see. Well, you couldn't see out of that eye, but you can see out of the other one. So your brain's still trying to see out of both eyes. And so you're tripping over everything. You're right. running everything. You know, uh, it was very difficult. How, right. how well can you see now? Oh, I got twenty. I got twenty twenty vision in after the implant, and and I got little stigmatism in my left eye. But my other eye is real strong, so my sight's still real strong. It probably helped my my vision in my right eye better because I had that impairment right. there. But it, the hardest thing is your brain separating out. Like when I when he, a matter of fact, when I got fitted with a contact after that, that was a hard part because when you put that contact in, now you see in double. And the doctor says, oh, you won't be able to see, you know, keep it in, but about 15 minutes. He says, because you're going to get dizzy. I said, what? I almost threw up the first time I put it in. It was like, oh, I was seeing two of everything because your brain separated. After a while, you get where I can I can look out of one eye and see, and then I can look out of the other eye and see too. Yeah. So, so what was happening is that your your eye was, uh, was evolving to, you know, life with only one perception yeah. one eye yeah your brain your yeah, brain, your brain separates was, yeah interesting yeah. so let's go back to the base, the baseball real quickly when did you first get connected to baseball i mean i know i, I mean i was a baseball player when i was like nine years old eight and nine probably the same as you mm -hmm. but you had such a great talent that you were you were with a bunch of uh triple a teams double a made it up a double a but it was i mean uh, the <sighs> I actually loved football more than I did baseball. And I came out of high school having more football scholarships than I did in baseball. Wow. But I did in the JCs. I got Valencia picked me up, and then I had a falling out with a the coach there. I went to Central Florida. We won the state championship. I go to Florida Southern, play there, and then I signed with the Braves, and then I played out that time with the Braves. What position did you play? Catcher. Catcher, you're right. Catcher. And thank God oh, my knees until now. But right. I've been pretty good. So, but I, I really got burned out on baseball, and it was actually in college. My coach, he played. I was I was probably the better catcher to you know to play the full time. He had to use my bat, so he used that part of me. Mm -hmm. But then he wouldn't let me get the time that I needed when I was at, at Florida Southern, and then he goes somewhere else. But I was recruited by 
the pitching coach. So it was like, you know, it was all that. So the politics got into it. Right. And then we got professional ball. The politics were there too. Wow. Because if they want to make it, you play that many years, you, you, you all, everybody's pretty good. Did you leave the game or did the game leave you? Oh, uh, actually, yeah, in, in my, that, did, did you? I, I left the game. I yeah. think I left the game because you know what? I was fishing all the time and I don't even know how these guys do it today. You know, the, because my, I got my nephew plays and they play this, you know, travel ball. So they play year round. Right. I, I mean, I'm an outdoorsman. I love the outdoors and I just, that's what I love. And it took me away from it. I didn't get to do it. So I, I got angry at a point when I was still playing. I was like, I'm done. I'm, I, I'm ready to quit because I, I don't like this anymore. Right. Because everybody else get to go hunting or go spring breaks and college and stuff. I, didn't, I had to play baseball. I never got to go skiing. So you never wrapped your head around being a professional baseball player, no. and that's what you did. Yeah, I did, but here's the thing. Because was, you wanted to go fishing and do everything else as well. I don't think it's that as much as the people. I played with just as good talent in high school as I saw all the way through professional ball. Not everybody. You know, you know there's like these few, but these guys could have made it. I saw right. pitchers that could have made it. I mean, I saw pitchers get released that could have made it. And but it's all been politics on okay, here's a good a good here's how I talk to my clients and I tell them about it. I say, like, okay, Johnny Bench played ten years past his prime. His knees were shot and he could got where he couldn't hit anymore. But Johnny Bench was a gate receipt and those people are not going to lose that. Right. So that's why I felt about baseball. Well, also it's, it's, you know, sure. They can read the numbers, how many hits you get, mm -hmm. you know, your batting average is X. Mm -hmm. um, you have a golden glove um, because you ground so ground so well, mm -hmm. you know, um, but look at and, this right here. I mean, this is, and there's another thing is you skied at the top of the game. Right. But it was you. You were a team skier at times, but most of the time that's your particular talent of beating somebody downhill. Here's the difference, too. Not that baseball is subjective because there are numbers. Right. But if you take a look at the Olympics that we're seeing right now on television, there are so many sports where you're judged with a subjective eye as to how well or poorly you just performed. Yeah. Yes. That's the beauty of ski racing. That's the beauty of uh, a lot of sports. Um, Actually, that, baseball is similar to that, too. You're either going to hit well, the that's ball what or the yeah. But that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. I mean, even though at a younger age, you know, you might not get picked for a certain team, even though you do have a batting average right. and you ground out well or poorly. Uh, so there's a fine line that's played. Do you think had you gone in and stayed in with your full heart, like, I'm going to make it? Do you think that might have made a difference in your life as a baseball player? Yes. I think so. I think so. Because you you were you were a little bit um, – uh, what's the word I'm thinking? You were a little bit um, – you had too many, too many options, too many hobbies that you loved to, right. uh, to perform and per participate with. Yeah. You know – but here's the here's a part that I think about too. How many people? How many how many players that did put in that work, and then one coach didn't like him because of something, right? And he doesn't play him. Yeah, no, I get that. When you're a racer, you got to be. You're the, the clock top. doesn't lie. But yeah, but, yeah. but also too here in ski racing, 
even though you might not have won a, a, a race or two or three, at a young age, a coach can say, I know there's talent there. Right. And we have to work with this kid and make sure he doesn't get hurt. And as a mentor, you say, look, you can, you, you can't, you can, you can win a race in these locations and these other locations, you cannot win there, but you can definitely lose the race there. It's right. like in a golf tournament. These are certain holes you cannot attack. You've got to just say, you know, make par in these three holes, but the rest of the course you can attack. Uh, in baseball, and in all sports, talent is obvious to mm-hmm. to the guy who's got uh, a refined eye, like right. in a ba- like in a fly cast. Uh, Ted Williams, uh, um, you know. So person. so here's the problem. I think in all sports we lose a lot of talent because we don't have the mentors and and as the professional people saying, "No, you're going to do this and you're going to make it, but it's going to take you a little bit." Yeah. Patience takes time. It's like fly fishing. You can see somebody who's a great caster. They want to do it, but they don't have enough time. They don't apply themselves. And then it's like, Nikki, I can't take all my three boys and say, okay, you're all going to be fly fishermen. Like the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. So all my boys saw a mullet, and they saw my boat when they did this, and they caught snapper off the docks. But he was the horse that wanted to drink the water. So he's here. So now I can work with, with him. Right. Do you see in your life where there might have been a mentor that could have done that and said these things that didn't? Because as a young athlete, you don't have the wisdom and the understanding of these dynamics. True. And I, and I, had, I had that person, of course he passed away, it was George Jeannie. He was like, I mean, the guy was incredible. It was in Little League. You know, if I would have been full-time with him, he's the one that kind of really taught me. And my bat was probably one of my biggest offensive things is, like, I could hit long ball. I could hit for an average. I could hit real well. But when I go to college, you don't have that choice. You're recruited. Mm-hmm. You go play for him, or you go to minor leagues. I mean, Bob Veal was our pitching coach when I was with the Braves at in, in, at – when I first went in and he says, son, you got talent to make it all the way to the show right now. He says, you got two years, three years. He said, if it's not going to make it, it's an age thing. It's a factor. When you're 25 years old, if you hadn't made it, you're not going to make it. Did your eye prevent you from making it? No, I think my, your injury, it did. It, that took me out of baseball. Cause once I did that, I was a year without, you know, vision, well, that's that judgment at hitting yeah. a baseball. You know, I can't hit a baseball real well because yeah. now I don't even know if I could now, you know, right. because it takes you away from it. I mean, you're so tuned in when you're hitting back then. I used to let a baseball like cross my shoulder right there and watch it, and I could see it when it went by. Right. And, you know, getting these, you know, streak hitting that you just – baseball looked like a – I don't care how hard they're throwing, what kind of breaking stuff they're throwing, thing looked like a basketball coming in. You're mm-hmm. just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to kill it. So you were forced into becoming a fisherman? Nope. I was already fishing. I was already guiding when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And I got burned out on baseball. But it forced your hand to be a full-time guide? I wanted to. Okay. I told everybody when I was in college, I said, nope, I'm going to be a fishing guide. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, this is my mission. Yeah. And it wasn't It wasn't become – the difference in, in the way I look at guiding – compared to 
maybe a lot of other people. I mean, a lot of people, you know, it's fame or whatever it is, easy life or whatever. Mine's a challenge. And I'm challenging a, I got one competitor other than an angler on the front of the boat who's a fish. Right. Why is he want? Why is he there? We were just talking about earlier before we started this on, okay, this temperature is here. Why is that fish there? That fascinates me. Mm-hmm. That, do you think other? That's my drive. Do you think uh, most of the other guides think in in this level, this sophisticated level of, of placing or or connecting uh, the pieces? The good ones. The good ones, they really... You know what? Uh, I, I see that because a lot of times the conversations are way, way beyond the fish itself. It's why the fish is there, which is what you're talking always. about Always. Have you always had that sense of feel? I, I couldn't stand it not knowing why I wasn't there. Right. I mean, why was there? Why wasn't there? How'd he get there? And this this unfolds my whole career of fishing of from Homosassa all the way to the key, lower keys back to Booker Grand and back here is watching the flow of fish mm-hmm. and how they go. And then taking these small little niches, small little niches of fishing, like one little bay and take it. How did that fish get in there? Why does that tide come in that way? How's it get there? Okay. Where do the fish stack up on that specific tide on how they're going to feed there? Is it temperature or is it current? Is it food source? Most fish are lazy as hell. Mm-hmm. They don't really, you know, want to move from where they are. Permit, they're a little different. <laughs> they they do what they want to do, but but tarpon are are seeking out like temperatures right now. But I start putting this piece together, and like I, I really remember in Boca Grande, really putting a piece together of knowing where the fish were going to show up at that bay at that time. Right, early season when it start, I would follow. I'm like a little weird, but I'd pull up the comp stations and find out what temperatures were offshore because I knew they were coming from either offshore or coming up from the lower keys or coming up from Florida Bay, headed up that way. And I needed to find out what the comp stations were to find out where they were going to show up. Because sometimes if you look at a map, you'll see the Clusatchee River and it's a straight shot to Boca Grande to Charlotte Harbor through the Clusatchee River. Clusatchee River right through Mount Lachey right there. Other times they would come in like off Captiva and they would show up there, but it was because there would be a cool spot down here in that early season would cause these fish and they would come up and they'd get off Maps Point. Then they would funnel up through Captiva Pass. But figuring that out took all these years of my fishing to start pushing these pieces together. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll never figure it all out, but I just I enjoy understanding the big picture. Now coming down here, is the same thing with Florida Bay. Why, you know, there was fish back in these bays years ago in the wintertime. People just didn't go back there. It was too far. You'd run out of gas. It was like the motor burned so much fuel, you know. You know there was somebody. But was you're back talking there. back there in the 50s and 60s then. There were still fish there yeah. in the wintertime. Oh, of course, they were, they were everywhere. Yeah, in May. They're there yeah, right now. Yeah, and everybody's like, oh, no, May, June. It's the tarpon season, but it's not. It's a year-round process. And, right. I, you know, I fish for tarpon year-round. I fish for tarpon every day. And then if I don't have a chance of tarpon, then I'll fish for everything else. Right. But figuring those patterns out, how those fish go, is just like we were talking about homosassa, kind of dropping back on that a little bit. But how those fish would come through those rocks is what fascinated me. Right. And how I got in front of them 
that was. But even cooler than that, one time, I'll just back up a little, or not back up, but go to a forward a little bit when I was fishing Brian Tang on eight pound, right? Poon Tang. Poon Tang, yeah. But I tell you what, he had some weird ideas on how he wanted to do things, and and this was back then. What was a weird idea? Give me an example. He would have an eight weight reel. He had an eight weight pillar that he fished with. And he had these lines and he'd cut them eight, down. Eight weight pillar, what do you mean? Uh, 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 what's a Seamaster pillar. Oh, okay. That's just real. Because it was light and it was, you know, he used an eight weight because he couldn't break off eight pound tests. We fished eight pound all the time. And he had this idea and he had built these lines. He had like a, like a teeny top line. He would cut lines down and make this. And he had a six weight running line or, or no, an eight weight head so he was thinking line drag in the oh, water yeah, once he got the fish had amnesia on. behind it and all this other stuff and everything but he had great hands okay we hooked a fish at like 3 30 in the afternoon real close to where we were uh, fishing but it was in the guido line it this fish came out and it was about 3 30 it comes out he hooks it that's about a 165 170 on eight okay so i have my 18 silver king so this was mid 90s and this fish takes off and it goes, I mean, you, you're familiar with the area. It goes all the way to Hernando Beach Light. Turn around and comes back by Smith's Rock and turns and goes because the tide's down and it goes on the outside line around what we could just, me and Jim used to call the bar and grill. So how many miles is this for the audience? Uh, From there to Arapica, it's probably, I mean, from there to Hernando Beach, probably about five miles. So- I mean, we're on eight pounds. So, so you f- you're fighting this fish fighting five miles that way and then another how many miles back? Well, five miles back. Right. And then we go all the way to Black Rock, which is about six, eight miles. And how many hours later? Uh, it was about midnight. We were up at Black Rock. What time did you hook it? Uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. Okay. So we're fighting this fish and hit, it saucers up at Black Rock. And I said, okay, I'm going to get them. I get the gaff. Of course, I'm by myself. I mean, you, eight pounds, six pounds, you got to have somebody gaffing. It's just right. like somebody driving, somebody gaffing. So I go to get the fish, and I go over top of him, and he just writes himself. He sees me coming. I said, well, damn. And there's not a moon, all right? So I go underneath him to get him, boom, and he goes back. He was saucering back up again, and I try to go. I just try to take a jab at him, and no way. He sees it coming. His eyes are so better at night. And here's when it got interesting. So the fish writes itself, and now we leave, and he goes offshore. Well, I go run my boat around him, circle him, circle him, circle him, because it's rough out there, and I push him back ashore, and then we come right back down, and we follow the same exact route that fish swam when he went down the flat originally. He started getting into schools, and they're still swimming at night. What time of night is this now? That's 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. Yep. And he kept getting into schools with getting them out. And I knew that the only way I'm going to catch this fish is I got to get him to daylight where I, then I can push him into shallow water and hopefully get a gaff in him. So I'm telling Brian, I said, Brian, just relax. I said, just, you know, stay. I said, but I'm low on gas. We got five hours to wait. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I just So got, you had a headlamp and a spotlight or? No, I didn't, have a light. I, wasn't, no I didn't have a light. My running lights didn't work on my boat. I did have a, so it was late 90s. So we had, I had a GPS. That's the only thing that I had. But I know where I was. I mean, I, it was it was hardly any moon. It was just like a little slither of moon. So it was just dark. But I could see. I mean, I could see. But I, I kept going on this fish, and I'm starting to get low on gas. So I get on the radio, and I call Jim because he was on the radio. 
Because my phone, boy, I had a bag phone, right? Well, that thing had been dead a long time. So I get hold of Jim on the radio. I said, Jim, man, I'm, I'm running low on fuel. I got to. I don't have a gas gauge, I said, but I've been idling, I don't know, 20 miles, 30 miles now. And he says, where are you at? I said, well, I'm going past Smith Rock right now, and I'm headed back toward Hernando Peach in the Arapeca area. And he says, all right, I'll go get gas. So he ran and get gas, got gas, put in at Bayport ramp, and he ran out. He said, well, how will I find you? I said, you just start shining your headlight, and when you're pointing at me, I said, just run toward, and then run and stop. And he did that till he got to me. And the whole time, Brian, you know, is fighting his fish, and he started looking back, looking back. I said, Brian, don't look back. I said, just pay attention to the fish. Right. I said, I'm just going to pull the gas on, and I'll put it in as we're going, Okay. And so Jim handed me the first can, and and I said, okay. And he handed me the second can of gas like that, and then all of a sudden the fish jumped, followed back into water, and Brian says, he's gone. I said, oh, you got to be kidding me. I said, no, he did that before. He said, no, he's gone this time. And well, I pulled the hook on him. I, I couldn't believe he pulled the hook. You know, he just threw up and rolled backwards or something. And anyway, the hook fell. How off. many battles like that did you have over there at Homosassa? <sighs> That's the one is the only one I went that long. It was mm -hmm. what 13 and a half hours, 4.30 in the morning. We lost them. And then, you know, but that reel was too small. And that was what I said, you know, tackling and stuff. To pick up line. He was just like this all night. And when he got finished, his hands were just like cramped, like pulled together like that. Right. Just trying to hold the reel and stuff. Where instead of having a bigger one. Chances of catching that fish, I don't think you, I don't think it's gonna happen. You stand a better chance of catching them in the shallow water. You can push a fish into shallow water, but if you get in the deep water, yeah, it's uh, really it, tough to it, lift it, them up with eight pound. You can't. There's no lifting. You got wanna, four pounds of pressure. Period. I want to ask a specific question. Why did you guys call it the cock hole? Was it because did did Tom phrase that? And <laughs> of course, he you did. know, I don't know. We always just knew him as a cock hole. Was yeah. it because there was always smaller fish, and that was the idea that they were all males? I don't know. I don't know. It was always just it was just called a cock hole. Instead of black, it, it yeah rhymed with black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's an Evansism. It, it was. It, they're just big white holes, and you know, and they'd just get up there and just just be big numbers of them swimming around. They it's were tough like, to get. It's like Chanel number five. That's the channel five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an interesting thing though, just talking about, you know, cause we were talking about it earlier on, you know, how to float a, and, we, and I was fishing Brian another time and he'd take that damn thing and throw it up and like drift it down current to him. Oh, feeding fish with yeah, a fly. Yeah, feeding with a fly. But there was current. a hard current out there. One day we just stroked them out there. You know, we, well, we hooked a bunch of them. We lost a lot of them, but it was like fun because I was like, I said, I'd lead them out there about 12 feet. I said, okay. Throw a little mend in it, throw it, and then it would just like toot, and that fly would come down there. As soon as it got to one on the bottom, he'd slide it one time, boop, yeah. and here we go. And it would made everybody mad. I remember a time when I jumped in that daisy chain and you jumped on me that day. Remember that? It was, it was, it was glare, slick, it was slick calm, and it was so glary we couldn't see. Oh, right. And I, I was pulling, and then all of a sudden I stepped off the side of the tower. And I jumped right on the edge of the chain. He said, what the hell did you do that for? I said, hell, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I remember, I think I had uh, I had a, a Mercedes 280. Yep. Little car. Yeah, I got tickets I was, all the time. I was half, well, that, well, I got tickets. I, I got tickets with Volkswagens. I was always going fast. I got halfway to Homosassa, and all of a sudden, it started leaking oil. And uh, I can tell because I got pulled over. <laughs> for speeding and i had oil over the back end of my car so i put oil back in the uh in the engine and i went back to boke and got another car and i didn't get i didn't get up to homosassa until very early in the morning 
you know, it was almost all night it took me to get there. And that whole day, I'm like sleeping on the on the floor of the boat and Tommy would say, okay, I got some at 10 o'clock. Wake <laughs> oh, up. I do remember Wake that. up. Where are they, you know? Get up there and cast. Yeah. <laughs> but there were a number of guys that were so possessed with the record trying to catch these fish. Were mm-hmm. you into the record game or, or you I were did. just into I, I, like uh, fishing and, and having fun with these big fish? I, I, I like the records. Yeah. I, I really did. I had Brian. It was kind of the main one was on that on the eight. eight pound which is tough and i had you know bill we i mean i've hooked and caught some big fish with bill up there bill who uh bishop okay i remember one time though that, that bill first time that i'd fished him up there after he learned how to cast stuff first time i fished him up there i had some fish coming and he was a and he's a really good turkey hunter you know like top of game caller and everything does he's seminars and i had a guy that i went to college with hey i got a guy i want you to meet let's go to safari club and i said okay i went by there and met him and he did a turkey seminar and uh, and then he wanted to come tarpon fishing so i took him out tarpon fishing the first day first string of fish comes up of course he had a little bit of wind coming through the middle of the boat and he throws anyways he stuck me in my arm and i Reached back and I snatched a fly out. I threw it and bought it. I said, go, go, go. He said, no, I can't. I just stuck you with a fly. I said, no, you better throw it. <laughs> so anyways, he throws and he couldn't get it out of the boat. And then so I gave him one of my rods and reel. And I said, here, take this right here. Learn how to cast. Come back next year. He came back next year. He could throw. I fished him in Boca Grande first for like three days, four days, warmed up. First time now he's legitimately fishing in Boca Grande. I mean, Homosassa now. Those fish fight harder in Homosassa. In that early season, that's probably one of the hardest fighting fish I've ever seen in my life. And until you've hooked them before, so you know, mm-hmm. got a good idea. These fish are, I mean, they go due west. They're gone. Right. But I had Bill there, and I had a string of fish coming, about six fish coming. I said, I said see him coming? He said, yeah, I got him. Go ahead. Laid it out there, and he hooked this fish. Fish came up, boom, good. He set the hook on me. He said, I got him. He said, but he's not going anywhere. So I said, hit him again. He tightened up again. He said, he's still not. I said, hit him again. Hit him again. And I just stomped the bottom of the boat real quick like that and fished. It looked like he was taking it and trying to rub the fly out on the bottom. He's like, rawr, 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 on the bottom of the sand was coming up off the bottom like that. And all of a sudden, he just like launched about 25 feet greyhound. Landed in the water. Bill turned around and looked at me. He said, that ain't right. I said, "Welcome to Homosassa." <laughs> Welcome to Homosassa. That thing like took off like a rocket ship. Well, um, so you just moved to the Keys from mm-hmm. um, the uh, Boca, Boca Grande, Grande area. Uh, what were you seeing up there that um, inspired you to move here? Well, because you'd you'd been you basically grew up in that area, correct? Yeah, no, I grew up around Homosassa, where I, you know, that's right. where I was. When born you're younger, but your adult younger, life, I spent a lot of time in my younger life in in the Boca Grande area, right down off Costa and stuff. Um, and I really loved it. Um, the fishing got tough. I mean, lots of fish. I mean, like right now, the snook population's off the charts, but the way the boats run around there. It gets to where you almost can't catch those fish anymore. I mean, it's 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 not not fun. I was starting to get so angry every day I'd go fishing, and my wife would say, "What's wrong?" I said, "Well, I got run over. I mean, these guys are just they running up down the fish. I can't catch them. It's like I'm getting angry every day. I can't, you know." And, and she said, "Okay, we're just gonna have to move." 
Wow. I mean, this was after three years of me just getting angrier and angrier. And it was just, I don't understand how people treat a fishery that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, these fish are swimming this route. Why do you take a tower boat and run right through the middle of the fish on the plane that the fish are coming from? They just don't know better. Well, they're hunters. I mean, uh, these guys, most of them go, you know, deer hunting. I don't drive them a truck up to a damn mm -hmm. tree stand and climb up in it and leave it running, do I? Well, um, you would think that if they would understand the fish a little bit better, they wouldn't do that. I'm thinking. Maybe. I'm thinking they just don't know any better. I don't know. But it, it I, I just got so angry with that situation, and then it was that, and then there was more tower boats running down the shorelines to where the snook and redfish got almost uncatchable. I mean, it's just like, right. so I'd get angrier and angrier and I, you know, and I kind of was fishing the Keys quite a bit before I went home to Sassa. And so I was really, I've been wanting to, I didn't, I, I left the Keys in the late eighties because I didn't want to raise my kids down here. So you were here in the, in the early eighties, early 80s, for how many years? Or late eighties. So mid, mid late eighties, right. five years. I was in big pine fishing oh, a lot. And, and I just, I didn't want to raise my kids here mm -hmm. because you just realize I've seen a lot of black boats run down the middle of the channel at night and no lights on, but it wasn't, it was running drugs, you know? And then I looked at a lot of the guys that had kids and they were in trouble and stuff. And I said, no, I can't do that. Right. That's when I moved to Boca Grand area. Well, I went up and I tried on the East coast and my wife, she's from Orlando area. I played baseball with my brother-in-law in college. And years later I meet her and anyways, I fell in love. Um, and she's probably my greatest friend I have. She is my greatest friend. All my kids too. But uh, I go up there and I tried it there and the area was so small that I was like, okay, I, I can't take this. It's just not enough real estate for me to learn. So I said, I'm going to see if I can move my guys to home to Boca Grande. When I moved there, there was hardly anybody fishing the back country. Right. It was off the charts. Right. I mean, I found fish that nobody was fishing, and especially nobody fly fishing. One of the, a lot of the guys from Punta Gorda and Port Charlotte, they didn't fly fish. You know? I remember one day we were up in the hump, and the and the crabs were floating oh, up on the falling tide, yeah. and we're dipping crabs, and yeah. we got spinning rods. And I mean, I don't care how I catch a tarp. Yeah. I mean, sure, I like to catch them with a yeah. fly, but um, go buy you know a dozen crabs like we did that one day, and yeah. go look for a big daisy chain. Yeah. I mean, oh my God! I mean, fishing's fun. Why oh, not? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I could see why you had such a great time there, and it must have broken your heart to get to the point where you can't even fish. Yeah, I was. I'd get aggravated, you know. I, you know, you realize I grew up in a time when if you had a problem with somebody, you go climb on their boat and discuss it right then, or meet them at the dock and get out. And you can't do that anymore. Right. I don't know what is going to happen if I run into that situation again. <laughs> well, you'll you'll probably get arrested. So when you moved back down here to Alamorado, was there any animosity or hostility from the guides that, you know, were true conks? You know, I fished by fishing all the tournaments and stuff here. I got to know a lot of them. I, I didn't run it. I hadn't ran into any problems with that. I think it's cause I have my own clients and my clients and I'll share clients with them too. Mm -hmm. Um, and I respect them and I respect their water. But the biggest problem I see just like in uh, Boca Grande is how much water is available and how crowded it is now yeah. down here. Yeah. Here? Yeah. Uh, this is nothing compared to what it It's all a matter of perspective. There. But still, as Nikki's but, made mention, a lot of guides don't want to see 
you know, the guys from Montana move here oh, and, yeah. and fish their fish to, oh, yeah. in the winter. Then they go back and, you know, to trout fishing. A lot of times summer. they're there coming in and competing where they're anglers too, for their anglers. There's where a lot of animosity comes into. I'm not competing for their anglers. I don't need their anglers. Well, I, but here's here's the question I have. But you're still taking us. I, I mean, we're still taking, taking spots, spots on the ocean. Yeah, so he's saying taking anglers. But right. if I'm fishing with Robbie or Timmy Klein or whomever, mm-hmm. I'm not going to all of a sudden start fishing with you. I would think that uh, I wouldn't think that would be a problem too. But I think mm-hmm. the biggest concern is that there's only so much space out there. Right. Right. Well, here I mean, you got to take that relative okay so like if i go down an ocean side and i'm looking in their spots i know what a distance is on the spot to me my distances are a lot greater if i go down to another spot i keep going mm-hmm. i don't need a specific spot to go catch tarpon i just need free swimming tarpon right that are not harassed or not run over that spot's hard to find now yep but i'll go back there mm-hmm. there's a lot of it back there right but people they get frustrated back here i don't Right. Or even down in, in, in when I was down in Big Pine, I mean, there's all, there's everything in the back back there too. There's tons of fish. Right. And they're swimming those places. It just takes more time. The ocean's easy. Right. To go find a spot. Well, I don't, I don't need it. Cause like fishing in the tournaments, if I'm fishing the big tournaments, you know, the Golden Fly or the Gold Cup, that's a weight tournament. I prefer to fish back here because the fish are bigger. Mm-hmm. And I want to go fish big fish cause the big fish are going to out do the tournament most of the time well you got to catch weight fish to win there you go but you get and much less shots oh yeah but, but you're thinking they're bigger and so yeah they're bigger yeah and I mean, they, they, eat, they eat much they better eat much better i mean i've caught i've hooked i mean, you know scott green two years ago we should have won it they won a tournament we lost a 160 right away and he had a saucer three times and i said we got all day i said really you're I shouldn't say that, but I don't care if tarpon dies because it's a tournament fish, right? But it didn't, you know, it just, he it saucered it, had it there, and it dropped its head, went down too far. Now, this is like hour and a half in a tournament, the Gold Cup, and it goes down and it drops its head, and he tried to stop it. Broke him off. What does that do first day of the Gold Cup to an angler? I didn't know if I'd ever get him back up to throw to another fish, but we hooked two more good ones that day too. But mm-hmm. it's like, it puts you in a spot in a tournament. You don't want to do that. Here's what happens. And I've been there before is that sometimes when you get like, we're talking about closing mm-hmm. uh, a tournament, closing mm-hmm. any sport of a, of a, of a sporting competition, you're leading a baseball game by one It's the ninth inning and the other team scores or they don't. How do you close in a fishing tournament? It's a five-day event, and you need to catch a, maybe a weight on the last day, and you get a little cocky with a seventy-five pounder and you break him off. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens as an angler? You're afraid to break another one off, and you don't pull as hard, or you don't set the hook as hard. That's then right. you jump four off. You hook them, you feed them, you, you jump them off because you're afraid to set the hook. Exactly. So it puts you in uh, a very defensive uh, state of mind. You can't win tournaments like that. No. I mean, I look at it like this, and because and, and Nicky's a tournament fisherman too, and really good. If, if, if the angler come in there and was competing against a fish, I mean, you got to think about this. Before that tournament, okay, in April I was fishing Scott in Booker Grant. He put four fish over 120 pounds in my hand before noon. 
over 120 pounds in the harbor and it was cold. No problem. 16 pounds, just laid them in my hand. I just grabbed them, take hooks out of them. And got in that tournament and that one right there, you had to beat. It was like, it was done. That was in June, you know? Look, until you become a refined tournament fisherman, then That's you understand point. the dynamics of what tournaments are all about. And it takes a long time to be in, in the hot seat yeah. before you really um, acclimate to being in that position. It's like in any sport, you got to be there. You might get lucky and win one tournament, mm -hmm. um, but to win a lot, you're going to lose a lot. Yeah. And then you, all of a sudden it starts coming together. Then you're going to have a window where you're not going to get beat. Okay. And then the window that I look at, and this is what I try to you know, try to tell to Scott and and other clients and everything that I fish in tournaments. If you compete against that one thing that we're competing against, you'll fish, and that's the fish. But if you start trying to compete against the other anglers and what they're worried about, they're doing it gets in your head. It's just like going in a slump in baseball. You know, you just bury yourself yeah it's hard to stay that's, concentrated yeah. and it's very was, accurate that you're talking about that i was gonna say that's why i have a hard time fishing in the back because i know what rob and dustin are seeing on the ocean it's like god damn it but I, they don't I can't just, catch them all the time no I, I understand but it messes with my head okay but the, but we're, we're, we're looking for one two three fish right when they're throwing all day long okay it's just it's a it's a mental case for me i know but you gotta really use a good angler young angler too so you need to really get this in your mind you're still only competing against that one fish. No matter what they see out there, if you go back there and see three over 100 pounds and you hook all three of them, you're going to catch all three, right? I might hook all three, but not necessarily catch. Well, no, I understand what you're saying here too, but let's just say you pull the fly out of the first fish that bites it. You know, now you're really, you know, you only have three shots all day. You don't only know you're going to have three. You know, if you've you got to, wait, wait. You have to fish perfectly. And that's the, that's the problem about fishing in the back where you're only going to get three shots all day. You have no room for mistakes. Right. Yeah. And on the ocean, you might have 50, 60 fish swim by your boat. And I think that's what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I understand the numbers game and, and how you're doing that. But then I, I there's a part of me that disagrees on that because a lot of it is, is okay, I missed that first shot. If you were fishing a day and you – just say we're not in a tournament and you're on front of my boat and you missed one back there. Would it bother you? No, not at all. Yeah. I'd be and pissed. you'd catch the next one that came by. Right? I'd, I'd be pissed. Cause I know I might be only have pissed. two shawl days. Like, God damn it. Fuck me. <laughs> fuck. Let's go to the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little ADD. I've seen that before. You'd be up home. I used to ski, I used no to ski at a hundred. <laughs> How could I fish at zero? I know. Here's a, here's one thing they were talking about the fish and, and you were seeing the curves on the fish. On on home assassin, you know, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. We're talking about curves. The the number of fish, the ebbs and oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. ups and down. There's there's a lot to that in any place you fish for tarpon, especially if you're talking May and June. Now this time of the year, no, you're not because they're not spawning. But you got to realize they spawn on the moons, and generally the la the last big moon in May, both moons in June. And both moons in July, but usually at least one of the moons, they come in before the moon phase and they leave on that fallen tide on the top of that moon. That's when they go to spawn. The rest of the time, they're coming. They'll do the same thing about Grand Pass. They'll fall out on those outgoing tides because that's kind of what they do. Mm -hmm. But the number of fish increase 
before the moon. Of course, yeah. And then they fall off. So that's what happened to Homeless Assalot. And then what happened to Homeless Assalot too was a number of shrimp boats that used to be there back in the day, back in the 80s and stuff. There's only like 12 shrimp boats worked out there. Now there's like 80 shrimp boats that are catching bait for the whole state west side of Florida. They're pulling those tarpon out there during those other times of year, I do believe. They just stay out there and feed and gorge yourself behind those shrimp boats. Mm-hmm. The other times, the fish would come inside, and you had fresh water. You had a lot of crabs, a lot of fish. So they'd just be in there. They'd be a black rock, and they'd come down the flat. Black rock, and then all pre-spawn aggregate stuff. And then on that moon, they're gone. Right. Two or three days, you'll get some of them back. Some of them keep going. But That's what's interesting here in the Florida Bay, <laughs> the Keys area, and the lower Keys, you know. Uh, that full moon in May, that third week, a lot of the fish are, are, are worm hatches on the ocean, so they're they're congregated right. in smaller areas. I re- used to remember in the back country, it, it would all of a sudden there'd be no fish back there. Yeah, they're all on the ocean looking for worms. Well, a lot of times too, there's a lot of those fish who in the back would be good that way too. They'll go to you know because we had a fish that we tagged in Boca Grande. <clears throat> this was um, a lot uh, several years ago. We tagged it and it sat in the pass overnight. And it left that next morning, and it was at nine mile the next day. From home really? from Bo- From Boca Grande, not from, from Boca Grande. Wow. Grand. It left there, and it went, I mean, it left that morning. That night, it was in, at nine mile. It spent three days running up and down nine mile. How many hundreds, hundred miles is that? <sighs> Probably 120, something like that. And so anyway, but it sat three days there. And then it goes out, goes into the pocket, comes out of pocket, goes down Buchanan, goes past the point goes into channel five, goes all the way to grassy. It goes past duck and everything, comes right back at set channel five bridge at night. The next night is in Boca Grande Pass. Are you kidding me? That's so, a B, that's a BT tag, uh, yep, tagged fish yep, that you guys tagged. Tagged fish, it tagged. So, wow. And then they had another one that they tagged in Boca Grande. Sat in the pass overnight in 70, what was it, 73 hours? It was at the mouth of Mississippi River. In 76 hours, it was back in Boca Grande Pass. Oh my God! So those fish travel a lot I, more than we do during the spawning season. So you I gotta, find it amazing that they would go that far in one direction, then all of a sudden they're possessed to go that far backwards. And why? No, no. Yeah, you know, and the other, you know, when that one was caught in there, he probably got hooked up with a school, and it could have been before the moon, you know. And, and they were they, traveling. And they're just traveling. Yeah, you know. But you think about, you know, in twelve hour period. That's a long way, 120 miles, mm-hmm. but he's doing 12 miles, you know, 10, 12 miles an hour. You see the school of fish going like this. I followed a school one time from Venice to Boca Grand Pass in an hour. How far away is that? It was 20, about 22 miles. Wow, that's pretty fast. In an hour. I couldn't yeah. catch up to them. I mean, I, I would, I, they'd, they'd go and I'd be idling, 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 and I'd jump on a plane. I'd run way up here. And not were, you, watch were you trying to catch them? No, no. I was just, well, I was, I was, was headed back. Them. I was headed south. So I was just following them back. Oh, interesting. And they would just, they didn't even slow down around the pass. So they'd go right through that pass. And it was about, you know, two, three hundred fish in that mm-hmm. school. And that's how they were, you know, right over top of each other. So we talked a little bit about this with Dan Malzone, but I was curious in your eyes, why did Homosassa, you know, why do you think Homosassa dried up so fast and so quick? Because it seems like there's a good chunk of fish still in Boca Grande, and it seems like there's still a lot of fish in Apalachicola, but it just seems like right in the middle there is a dry spot. I, I think I think you just hit it right there. It's a dry spot, okay? 
when when we'd see the most fit, I mean, when we got into the 90s, I remember that my push pole would be covered in salt at the end of the day. My shirt would be white with salt. But in the 80s and early 90s, it wasn't. But there was a lot more fresh water that was coming out back then. It was in the aquifer itself. They they developed a section in there that took, took a lot of that water, fresh water out that used to be there. And I think that is one of the factors. Because I, I know that Danny was talking about, you know, visiting on your trim tab, see, you know, blue crabs. Right. And they always have a hitchhiker right there. He'd be always sitting on there. Those kind of disappeared. But I think the amount of water, they used to measure the bowl in the Wikiwachi River by the height of it. It would be like, okay, there was a marker there, and it'd be six foot. And now maybe a foot. I don't even know if it's that high anymore. That's how much water used to come out of the Wikiwachi River. But that would be the same thing in the Chesawiska River and the Homosassa River. And so that fresh water, I think there's a salinity thing. And I don't know why. I talked to Aaron Adams about this too. A salinity thing for spawning fish. Because if you look at where the fish spawn a lot of times is generally around the mouth of a river. Boca Grand. There's two major rivers that come out right there. But is that because they congregate before they go offshore and spawn? Also, too, in the Keys, you yeah. know, you have uh, all the big bridges, Seven Mile, Bahia Honda, Chanel number two, and Chanel number five. <laughs> Dude, you gotta stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Evans, uh, we're, we're, we got you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so so I don't know. One thing I did find out is when we had all that red tide in Bucker Grand from the release of waters. And, you know, I want to thank the captains for going up to, you know, fighting this thing we are on our, you know, our ecosystem that we have going on. And maybe that fresh water coming back down here and taking that off those the east and west coast right here might help things. I think it will. I mean, it really do. Um, I forgot what I was talking about there. Um, you we were talking about home assassin and, and uh, the uh, salinity. Oh, the level. salinity level. Okay, so so I talked to Aaron about this when I went back to Boca Grande. This was like right before, it, and then I then that was it. That, that broke my heart because my daughter was running a chamber tournament, and I was down here fishing the gold cup, and she called me and said, "Dad, there's." all these dead fish snook got killed on you know on the little pass and i said it shouldn't affect the tarpon you know you still got the tarpon tournament going on she said you think we should add i said yeah you should have it and uh i didn't know the severity of it um but between let me let me go back to this between the tournaments and this is about the flow of the water out of lake okeechobee but this is going back to the same thing on the tarpon when i was talking about that salinity of water the protection is when I was up there and I did that big release out of, of Okeechobee and it came out and I just came back from the golden fly and I'd fished in Homosassa during that time. And then I'd come back and fish the Holly in the gold cup. But when I came back there, I was started at, uh, when I fished you, we got a buck around pass and then you got a uh, Kekosta uh, and then Captiva pass. Right. So I ran down to Captiva pass cause they like to settle in there and come out. And I got there and it was earlier in the morning. And I looked at the water and I can't, I can't see through it. I said, something's wrong with this water. I said, let me back up. So I backed up to the pines about halfway between there on Cape Costa. And I looked at the water and I'm like, what is wrong with this water? And I could see it. And then the sun got up about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And I could see this like distinct line 
of just this ugly water that I saw. And I was like, God, hang on, is that water? And then I backed up a little further, Kay Acosta, on the, on, the, on the pines down, I mean, on the shoals, and it was just gin clear. And I ran back to it, and then I ran from there offshore six miles, and I couldn't get out of it. And then the next day, I'd crossed the other section of the pass. So I called Aaron. I said, dude, that's water, because that water runs north when it comes out there. Even though it's pointed that direction, it's a back eddy off the Gulf Stream, causes that water to move to the north, and it settles up around Sarasota where a lot of that red tide gets started. I saw this stuff come by, and I called Aaron about it. I said, it's six miles offshore. I can't get out of this nasty water. And he says, oh, that's bad. I said, I know. I know it's bad. Well, I turned around the next day or so. Then I leave, and I come to the, back to the Keys, and I fish the holly, and I go to the goldfly. Well, that water got out there and turned into a nutrient, and the red tide got so bad and went so deep, it killed so, it, this big group of snook that laid offshore of us out there on the it killed every snook on it wow and these were just giant 20 pounders it just killed them all and they all floated up on the shore and that's when my daughter called me and that's when that red tide kicked off okay so all the tarpon disappeared except for one little place off the off the sea buoys offshore there was one little spot and the only dead dead tarpon i was finding was ones that these guys would go out there and catch them and they'd get tired and they'd get in that red tide and they'd die. The rest of the tarpon were up in the harbor. It was just like- They were hiding. Fresh water. Mm -hmm. Red tide can't survive in certain salinities. So I called Aaron, I said, I think I got one of the pieces of our puzzles is why these things congregate during tarpon season around these water masses. I said, because of red tide because it can't live back there. So if red tide comes around, tarpon just run up in there and wait till it go away, and then they will go back offshore. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, and so that's that one thing about salinity that we got to have is there maybe a protection for it. But all the snook ran up there, all the redfish, everything that from then that's what made the fishery survive around there is they all ran up into fresh water, and there was a lot of fresh water coming out. Yeah. So. Hmm. I think they've put their finger on the uh, homosalsis scenario with the lack of fresh water. I think fresh water is probably one of the bigger factors yeah. I saw there. Yeah. And I, I don't think you can change as too much development there. Yeah. All right. You know? And then it was like, it was always a fight. St. Pete was trying to get the water out of Pines County, was trying to get the water out of the springs there because it was such a large aquifer. Yeah. Well, I want to bring it back to a fun place. I mean, okay. your, your, daughter, <laughs> your daughter, Wesley's a, you know, a hell of an angler. Yeah, she's getting good. She's what getting is good. It, what is it like fishing with your daughter? She gets mad at me. Does she? Yeah, because usually I'm right, but she's. <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you say to her to upset her? Yeah, I don't. I don't really don't. I just I I critique. You know, I I critique her. Just like I would an angler, you know, trying to teach an angler how to get that you know cast to him and seeing what happens and how it gets out there, and trying to make her. She does have a a real fishiness too. I mean, she has. She's very dedicated. When she's on the bow of the boat, it's like extreme focus hunt, hunting. I'm hunting. I'm looking for an opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. to do it. So she's really focused at that. It's taken her a while. I didn't push any of my kids toward fishing. All my kids fish and they all can fly fish. I didn't push any of them at it because I saw a lot of people push their kids into it and they didn't like it. You know, I remember seeing pictures of you having all the kids and y'all are, you know, I'm on your backpack going fishing and stuff too. Mm -hmm. uh, but they all 
each each into each one's their own individual. But she is she loves it, and but she didn't not until probably in high school, and that's when she really oh damn, I really do like this, and then she got started catching a few fish, and then so she started getting really good at it. And now she's in the ladies tournament, correct? She's and, in the ladies, and I'm that her goal is to fish all the big tournaments too. Right. Yeah, well, I'd love to see her. Yeah. She she will. I mean, she can get sponsorship. I can't fish her. I'm like jealous. <laughs> I don't get because of family. Family, yeah, I can't yeah. do that. So. I know because I want to fish my dad. <laughs> oh, I suck as a guide. You don't want me. <laughs> yeah, you want Tommy. <laughs> but I can catch him. I just can't find yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but that's the thing is, is we were going. We were talking about that earlier before we got started too on the difference between anglers and super anglers and versus a good angler. Um, there's a lot of good anglers getting out there, but they got to get their focus right. And they got to be dedicated, but the number of days they fish is a critical thing. Right. Won't you say that? Well, look, unless you're in front of a fish a lot, and I'm talking years and hundreds and hundreds of days, I'm going to see something that a guy that fishes a lot won't see. Good. And a prime example is when you've got a fish in a certain situation, the biggest problem and mistake most people make is they throw the fly to the fish. And I really, really believe that real big fish want to be fed by having the current deliver the fly to them. The big fish has got to all of a sudden see the fly right here, but he cannot understand and know how it got there. So like a lot of fish, if it's deep in a certain channel, not necessarily a channel, but an area where there's a lot of current, but he's laid up, but deep. I'll throw that fly 30 feet above him. I'll lose the fly, but I know where it is. And I just keep picking up my slack. Now my attention goes from the fly to the fish and I'm watching the fish. And a lot of times you'll see a fish just, the body will just do this, where the gills will flare a little bit. And I just, I just strip it on my slack and, and hook him. It's almost right. like nymph fishing. It's nymph fishing because mm -hmm. I know he's got it. And, um, you know, I started fishing with really small flies with Timmy Hoover. And I started watching things a little bit differently than what I was, than what I was taught. And, and you only know that. You only get to feel about how to refine your techniques of casting, feathering a fly, hooking a fly, how to set the hook correctly. You only get to understand and, and learn how to do all that. Not by somebody telling you how to do it. I can tell you how to do it, but until you do it a lot, will you ever be able to refine that technique? So the difference between a good fisherman who can catch a lot of fish and a lot of big fish and a great fisherman who can catch the fish that does not want to be caught is the same difference between a good guide who can find a lot of fish and the guide who can find the fish that doesn't want to be found. When you connect that guide and that angler, you're going to win a lot of tournaments. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, that was probably one of the best analogies I've ever heard on that. I mean, that, and that's what I, I, I teach my guys. That's the, that, I, I talk to my, tell you that I'm a teaching guide. That's what I try to get out of my anglers and make them understand I can do this and I got some really good ones coming up and I got some that are really good. I hadn't been able to get them in a tournaments cause I'm fishing other people in tournaments and stuff. But to get to that standpoint, to that caliber of fishing is 
we're back to sports now again. You are so zoned in on skiing of how you hit a gate when you went through it. Your 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 tuning was so detailed. Probably how you went. I don't know. I didn't know. I know you got to get around it anything, but you're probably looking at just a little small part to go around it. And now when you're fishing now, that's what you're looking at. That little small part. When I was playing baseball, it was kind of that. When right. I'm fishing, what I do now is like that. I got a big pitcher, but I, I've shrunk that pitcher back down into this right here. And no one in trying. So then as me as a guide, a lot of times I'm brailing guys in. So I got to think so far in advance to get them to make that move that you're not, when I get somebody like you on a boat. All you do is oh, yeah, tell them where they Hey, where fish, they... 11 o'clock, got them. Yep, okay. Yeah. Here, here too, is like, it's like a, jigs, a, piece, a jigsaw <clears throat> puzzle. Mm-hmm. When you're first learning how to fish and guide, your puzzle might only have a hundred pieces and you've got to polish those hundred pieces. 40 years later, like I am in my fishing life here in the Keys and yours in your guiding life, your puzzle might have 50,000 pieces and we've been able to polish each and every one of those 50,000 pieces. There's no way unless that person gets lucky that's got a hundred pieces can beat you or me in a tournament. Right. So if you want to be a great tournament fisherman, and I and I have people contacting Nikki and me, hey, I'm interested in getting into tournaments. The first thing I say is, is how much time do you have? <laughs> Second thing is how much money do you have? Yeah. Because it's time and money. And the third thing is, do you have good eyes and are you an athlete? Um, a lot of times people want to do this or they want to ski well or they want to play baseball well. They have the time and the money, but they're not coordinated. Right. They can't put these moving pieces together. They right. can't be, they don't have the dexterity in their casting, left and right, hook it left-handed, hook it right-handed, you know, over the top of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, how to set the hook, what to see, what are they looking at? And do you have a million dollars to pay guides over the next 30 years to be in the water 70 days a year? Yep. Yeah, and they... unfortunately, if you want to be really good in today's tournament fishing world, yes, that's what the other guys are doing. Yeah, yeah, and they fish with the you know one of the superstar guides in the middle of May, and they have a stellar day where they catch two hundred pound fish, and it's like fuck, this is easy. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah, you know, but they don't know what's gone, what kind of homework has gone in behind closed doors. Yep, yep. I mean, I I look at it too in the standpoint. Back when I started out, you know, in Homosassa, right? As a guide, from looking at it from a guide, from my standpoint of looking, and I used to say, well, the only difference between me and those guys there is they're anglers. If I can find these fish, I can pull. Mm, I was so wrong because what I didn't realize, you're talking about Cecil Keith, you're talking about, you know, Billy Knowles, you're talking about Freddie Archibald, you're talking about, you know, Al DePere, you know, all these guys, all these guys that I've fished around, they trained their anglers. Mm -hmm. They made them what they were and helped them and kept them going and, you know, and all this stuff. But then I started looking about what I knew about guiding. All I knew was how to kind of locate the fish, but I didn't know how to feed them. I I thought I did, but I I really didn't. I didn't really start learning. I'd I'd look at it in 10-year increments, okay? My first 10 years, what did I learn? And how, you know, I see all these guides and Instagram guides and all the stuff, and I look at their knowledge, okay. And then I look, 
20 years down the road as I'm fishing, I'm like, oh, oh, what's the, okay, I've just seen a lot more. 30 years standing on the back of a boat, you're, now you're really starting to learn and starting to learn how to teach. Because what I've seen is millions and millions of fish eat little things mm-hmm. and watch them. And watch them where a fly lands, how it lands, what it does, how it moves. And most people, you know, they don't even, they lose their fly, you right. know? Well, and then 40 years, now I'm, I'm just having fun now. Look, I don't want people to think, well, they're really good because they're a bunch of rich assholes. Right. Yeah, we're rich assholes, but we've got a heart filled with passion. Yeah. And I didn't sleep for 15 years. Yeah. I would go home and tie flies and think and dream and remember what I saw that day, how that fish ate that fly, what I did maybe a little bit too soon. In the Gold Cup one year on the last day, I was down in the lower keys. Fish is laying there. I put my fly in there. And I started to feed this fish, and he came up with a little slow bite like this, and I slid that fly out a little too fast. I did not, I lost, I cannot tell you how many nights of sleep. That year, no, that year, right? After that happened, the following year, I'm in the same place. (laughs) I'm in, this is a true story. I'm in the same place. We go through that basin. We don't find any fish except for that one fish that was in the same spot the year before. (laughs) On my life. Holy shit. I said, there he is. And remarkably, I threw the same fly, the same place. The fish came over and ate it the same way. We caught that 115-pound fish. I said, said, Timmy, we need one more fish. We ran around the corner into another basin, caught another one, and won the Gold Cup. There you go. But that was that one bite a year later that I thought about for, I cannot tell you how many times to refine that. And had I just taken it for granted, I missed another one. But that's what it takes as a, as a guide and a, as an angler to what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah. How many hours I, I spend on that bench right there and still spend on that bench? And I go down to just a handful of flies I'm fishing that year. But they change, mm-hmm. you know, from year to year, size, whatever. And homosassa was really a weird way they bit different things there. Uh, but I spent hours thinking about it, okay, thinking about a specific thing, like if we could ever come up with a pipefish fly that swam just like a little pipefish, we could destroy the fish in the backcountry back here on slick calm days. Mm-hmm. Because they were eating them the other day when I was back there. They were mm-hmm. just eating these little pipefish. They're about that long, you know, about the size of a toothpick, a little silver belly on them, a little tan or olive on the back, and eat them all the time. But you can't make a fly. I have not been able to imitate that specific and what they get out of it. I don't know. It's kind of like a worm. What do they get out of it? Protein. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They like them. Right. And they eat them all the time because you know, Guido, you're talking about Guido, you know, he's like, he said, I said, well, how come they eat those things? He says, because it moved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd see right. it move it's over right. in a piece of grass and sometimes I actually caught fish in homosassa before and all over the place it's throwing out purposely hooking grass and twitch it like that on that fish and it's slick calm in the middle of the day and take it and just twitch it in that grass and all of a sudden I watch that fish go up underneath it and he'd look at it like that oh <laughs> you know what I've done that too yeah. you know it's like if you if you're making a strip and you get a piece of clump of grass yeah. 
stop stop and just wiggle it wiggle it so now it's like that piece of bait whatever yep. you have yep. as a fly now it's hanging up on a piece of, of, of grass he's gonna take the he's gonna eat the whole thing eat the whole thing but look i want to go back for a second okay i don't want people to think that just because they don't have enough money and that many days to fish that they can't be a great fisherman and i don't want them to be depressed that i've just painted a, a bad picture yeah, no, on, I agree. On their, on their agree. lack of money and lack of time and their lack of passion. If you have a heart of gold and you really care to be good, you understand, go on the internet, watch how people cast, learn how to cast, learn how to get better in a park. A lot of people go to the park and they want to, they, they want to practice. But unless you know how to practice and what to look for, you're just going to refine bad habits. Right. So, look, I started at ground zero like you did and you did. And no one, no one's going to take our heart away from us. No. And I don't want to get anybody upset at, at me saying this is how I did it and this is what it took. Because your lives out there are rich and full of passion. Right. I want them to chase that passion, chase that heart, learn how to get better through the abilities of the Internet or the availability of the Internet and conversations like this. And go out and catch that fish after listening to this podcast, right? And 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 be rewarded by having an interest and a heart of gold and a heart of interest to make them, you know, this is a hobby that we love. You know, go have fun with it, get better at it. Yeah. Well, one thing you said right there, <clears throat> it's that passion. The passion, the passion of somebody. I will pull ten times as hard. And sun up to sun down for people that have passion, the people that stand on the front of the boat, not the person that sits down and waits for me to find the fish for him and stands up and throws. Mm-hmm. It's that guy that's standing on the front of that boat all day long, which all my top anglers, they stand on. Some of them will bring somebody to fish with them because their back can't take it or something and understand all that. And but, they eat standing up and they never eat, stop looking. Always that passion, that driven part is what makes anglers so and everybody got to understand what you were saying not saying that you're well if you don't have this money you don't have this and you can't do it it's, it's like anybody can do it but you got to have that passion and that desire but then also you got to have open eyes to what you're seeing mm-hmm. because a lot of times i find biggest mistake i'll find with most of my anglers learning how to feed a fish is they look at the fish. A lot of times I can tell when they're casting if they're looking at the fish because I'll tell them, lead them three foot, a foot past them. And I'll see them throw, and then the last second I see that fly go right toward the fish because I know he looked at the fish. It's just like if I'm throwing under the mangroves, I'm throwing under the mangroves to make a cast. If I look at those trees, it's going in the trees. Mm-hmm. But if I'm looking at the water, it's going to go in the water. If I'm looking at where that fly is supposed to be, it should land within six inches of it. Right. You, see, get... you see that fish out of the periphery of, of your vision. Yeah. He's not going anywhere. You know, it's also, too, if you do it a long time, you can look at the fish and you know where the fly is going to go because you see that spot where you want the fly right. out of your periphery. Oh, yeah. Well, that's time on water. That's do time on the water. But, right. but, but the biggest part that people don't understand about a, a fish is when that fly lands on the water, then they look at the fish. Then they lost their fly. 
Now there's a difference to what you were talking about earlier, a fish in a channel down here, and you're thinking to cast 30 feet and this fly is nothing anyway. You can't see it when it gets there. But you know where it is. But you know where it is. But if that fish was on top, I guarantee you, Andy Mills knows where that fly is because he's looking at it. And then because when he's watching this in the peripheral vision, he knows what to do, but he sees the reaction of the fish. And a lot of things that I find is anglers, they quit looking at their fly. They move his fly, but they don't know what caused this fish to make that move. They don't even see that. When I see a fish move, I'm looking at the fly the whole time. When that, when my anger throws it, I'm watching the fly. I said, okay, slide it. I can see him. And when I, when I see that fly move, I get the reaction. I say, wait, kick it one time, boom. Or, you know, do something different to get that fish's attention. But I see the fish the whole time, but I'm watching the fly. See, we do it differently. I'm watching the fish. What are you watching? I watch the fish. It's a dance. Yeah, but you're, wa- you're watching everything. You're watching, watching you, everything, but, but you you know where the fly is. But I watch the fish because I want to see his eyes. Well, I see his eyes every time. I, yeah, but when I'm feeding the fish, I'm looking at the fish, and I'll do this. It's a dance, obviously. Right, right. You know, you make this move, you make this step. The dance does this. But the whole time you're seeing the fly, though. I know where the fly is, but I'm looking at the fish's eyes. Right. I, I want to see what his face is doing. I want to see how much of a crack in crack his mouth up. there is. Because if, if he's starting or... to come over and he starts to crack, I know he's going to bite it. Yeah, right. So I'm tuned on that fish, and I am allowing the fish to close the gap to my fly without moving my fly right, very far. Right. Most people, they just strip way, oh, yeah. too, way fast, too fast, and, and just... it gets out of the feeding zone, yeah. and or if the fish is following, you pull the fish closer to the boat. And pretty soon, the fish is going to feel the boat, and he's going to, he's going to turn away. So allow that that fly to stay where it is and feed the fish right there. Right, but right. my but I I always know where my fly is and if I go here just a tap, I don't need to watch that. Right. I want to I want to see what that fish is doing. But it's all it, it all works. Right. It all. I mean, the reason I do it, I keep my eye on the fly right there. Is to, it, or to get, try to get my clank, my anglers to keep their eye on the fly is in order to be able to what they did is what triggered that. And mm-hmm. then once that's kind of built, you got it in your mind already what the fish is doing. You are, you're watching, you've already seen the personalities of a fish. Mm-hmm. They have not seen it yet. Right. As an angler, they need to be able to see that. They need to see what causes that. Right. But you did say one thing, and this is, you know, emphasizing on people fishing, especially worm fishing, where you are two-handed or you're ticking or whatever they want to do right there. And you see that mouth crack, there's a time to stop. And then you got to let it because that fish is sucking in. And I always thought of that because I miss a lot of fish doing that. They slide it out of their you're, mouth. Always, you're always in constant Stop. tension. Stop. I know, but it, it's sometimes tough because they're just that little crack of the mouth. Except when I finally got Scott yeah. Green's gotten pretty good at it now. Scott's gotten, and Richard Christian, another guy I'm fishing in the holly, he's starting to see it now. And I'm like, well, you need to practice it all the time. I said, because there's a time when that fish comes up there. Every time he, he's like, you'll see it. I've watched him eating worms and you'll see him go, I've well, seen them eat crabs like that. Just well, well, yeah, you go down to Robbie's and you throw one of those pilchards yeah, in the water. They, they don't suck. overrun the no, bait fish. They, they suck come, it in. They, they come in from behind and yeah, suck it suck straight it in. Yeah, But it's a fragile uh, piece of timing in that if you see that he's actually eaten that, that worm fly with that crack of the mouth, if mm-hmm. you see that fly disappear, he's got it. But I've seen this so often. Let's just say your fly is just out here in front and he's starting to eat it like this. And you stop, right? But he doesn't have it yet. I've seen the fish do this. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? If, let's just say you're ticking. Yeah. You're doing the doodle here. Or if you're ticking with one hand, mm-hmm. fish is ready to eat, and you miss your strip. Just You just miss yeah. one strip. Mm. 
It's like, where's the love? You know, they just, they, all of a sudden they go, eh. And, yeah. and they yeah, it's a split off, right? second. Yeah. yeah. It's that much. But then I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going back to laid up fishing. Okay. So then a lot of times I would, I would like, bam, hit it real hard. See if you'll pull them back in. One thing I find, especially laid up fish, and I, I here's a little bit different in the in the bay when I'm fishing shallow water and stuff. But if I'm like, you know, back on the end of the park where the water's a little dirty and I see a fish laid up, and or even in actually in Boca Grande too, when they sit up there and they lay up, you see a fish laid up like that. You know, if you can get that fly that three foot lead six inches past it and don't move it, first thing I want to land, I don't want it to do anything. I want to get there with him not knowing how it got there. Okay, so I land. And I would prefer a ninety degree on a lot of my laid up fish I'd fishing because he's getting more. Because I'm using a smaller fly, so I want mm-hmm. a little bit more profile. Boom! It lands and I let it sink. I wait, and then I want to slide from this eye to this about maybe twelve inches just and stop. I was like, easy and it's nice and smooth. Too easy, and all of a sudden you'll see the fish like that. Oh yeah, you got him. And then I had a guy, he'll pick up, whoa, no. whoa, whoa, what are you doing? It was like, no, no, he's going to sneak up on it. He just goes down. They want to get up. a running start. <laughs> yeah, I was like, God, yeah, what you're you totally do that right. for? They disappear. Totally. They, they, they disappear. They, they, they sink on it. Yeah, but I, I get to see them. And when I'm up there, when I was up in Boca Grande, the water's super clear. So same thing. I'm in like eight foot of water. Boom. They don't go down as far as you think they would. They would just, they would just slide down like that. And you'll see them just turn. Right. Just leave it there. Leave it. Wait, 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 wait. Right when he gets about right here, I said slide it about two inches. You see this big old got mouth around. <laughs> got it's so cool. And then they throw it out in the air and stuff like yeah. that. But but back to the, you know, something else too that I I pay a lot of attention to is like the we're backing up on the garbage over there. That's all right. The um is we talked a little bit while Nikki was setting everything up, is actually the hook set, right? It's such a feel that it's a feeling of when to set the hook, or it's really not even a hook set, is to get tight. Mm-hmm. And each individual has to find it and feel it because there's a time in, on everything when you watch that mouth close. Now, I, I, when I get that mouth closed, I am sliding to fi- find them. And then as soon as I get them, it, you, you do things with a rod, and I see each angler do it differently. But everybody wants to know what it is. I said, no, when you feel that weight and you feel it right, this is what separates, again, the super anglers from the other one. You feel it a lot faster than anybody else. Are you starting to feel that yourself, Nikki, mm-hmm. when you're starting to really feel that weight and get tight on that fish? Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it takes a little longer, especially when they eat the fly and come at you. Right. You know, it takes a little longer. But, you know, I just really try to, not go to the rod. See, I want to. I want to get like tight to, on my left hand first. Yeah, I'd like to see the comparison to see both y'all fishing together, and then watch the difference because I know how you're ate up with it too, and you're. But it's just like a timing on hands and how what, what a person sees when they, when I, when I see a fish eat. I've done weird stuff, you know, when one comes at you and stuff like that. Sometimes it's good to just not do anything when they come straight at you. But it's just a timing on when I see a fish eat, close his mouth like that. Evans was one of them. He's like, oh, when he crosses his eyes, when he closes, when he closes his mouth, he's got it, right? Slide, got him, right? And then you had Clyde Bosch that didn't do anything. He just, just 
got whatever just never held got on and just held on and then really never got i like to get you know good and tight on one but i miss very few fish when i'm actually fishing and i don't fish that much anymore you know i just every now and then grab a rod throw it and hook one catch it okay yeah i can still do that but i i, I don't miss many fish and i found less you know when every time i throw out i mean, I'm fish with wesley and she said we're gonna grab the rod okay I go up there, throw out there. Oh, God. How did you do that? So I don't know. And it ends up, and I think about it when I'm setting a hook. Really, not only in set a hook, I just get tight. But it's a feeling on how tight I am, I already know whether I'm going to strip in and keep getting tight. I don't know. Sometimes I think just fish, either he's on or he's not. Right. <laughs> but. There's a feeling that I have in my hand. Well, I think what you're explaining is that you wait for that that tightness. You know, which a, well, a lot of times, unless you've done a lot, you're you too you're too you're too early to go to the rod. Yeah. And when that happens, the barb never gets past the edge of the bone. Oh yeah. So you've the been fish, the rod is over. Everybody says I, I jump ten, I can't catch them, especially smaller fish. The reason you can't catch a lot of small tarpon is because their head is so light that when you go to set the hook, the, you pull the head. Yeah. The head, there's, there's no resistance. Mm. So the hook can never really get, you know, embedded. Mm -hmm. So it's really important when you're fishing like in Campeche and smaller tarpon to use really small hooks so the wire is like a, a needle right. so that hook can penetrate much better. Uh, and just keep stripping and get tight because if you go to the rod first, that, all you can do is just poke it. The yeah. fish is going to jump and fall off the hook. Well, you know, I, just talking about that, I, I was fishing in a gold cup. You know, I was coming back. I had a little bit of outgoing tides. I ran all the way to the catch these fish coming out on that outgoing or sort of feeding on that outgoing right there. And I left there, and I was running back. And I had Bishop on the boat, and I was running. And so I ran a straight line, you know, straight from all the way across, straight Because I knew the only, the only person who was there was Flutie and Tom. And so I was on my way back, and I got right out in the middle of Ponce de Leon. But I'm offshore, you know, three miles, four miles, tarpon free jumped in front of me. And I said, pulled off plane. They all said, what are you doing, man? We got to get I said, no, man, a tarpon free jump in front of me. Oh, I don't care, man. I said, no, no, no tarpon free jumps anywhere, and I ain't going to check it out. Sat there for about five minutes. All of a sudden, boom, there they were. They're laid up. Yes, there's 80 acres of poons out there. I pull up in there and we start. We ended up jumping 26 during the Gold Cup. In the Gold Cup. In the tournament. 26. We caught two releases. Most of them I see on the top were bigger fish, but the problem was you'd throw a cast out and you'd drip in and have 10 bites on one cast. So many smaller fish underneath the big ones. Just boom, boom, boom. And they'd tear the leader up. Leader was shot, but, but, we couldn't keep them on. Mm -hmm. I said, well, we need numbers. I said, we're going to get, come back out here tomorrow. I go back out there, and I actually told Andy Thompson about it. Andy was out there, too. And we both ended up jumping like 20 fish apiece and caught two. And I had a little old tiny wire hook. But the bites were way so too violent. You know, mm -hmm. it was just like after you had – you made three casts, you had to change the leader out because they had scratched the leader. It was, I mean, he's like – How big were the smaller fish? 30 pounds. Oh, really small? Small. Yeah. Too small. Yeah. Anyway, Tommy, thank you for joining us. Yeah. What a great conversation. Well, you know, long time ago I fished with you and yeah. we're still here. We used still to be doing more details on everything, but yeah, it's a lot of fun learning on your own too. Yeah. You're a good man. Thank you so much. Yes, Thanks so much, Tommy. Great to have you. Thanks, Nick.
Tommy Locke has taken his craft seriously and has used his reputable voice to help preserve the environment these fish need to survive. He has made a name for himself on and off the water and has influenced others to look beyond the bow of their boats to become better people. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. Just a ride. Just a ride.